0: Welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. My name is Chris Triano. I'm here with my co-host, Stephen Canastracy.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: And we're super excited to be starting this podcast uh, today for you guys. The premise that we have that we kind of formulated for this podcast is to open up and be able to talk about a wide variety of things in relation to early American brass bands in the 19th century of hope to get to a variety of topics such as uh, just talking about generalized bands that occurred during the 19th century but also bands that exist today in the 21st century as reenactment bands. Uh, We want to talk about composers, uh, instruments of the time period, specific instrument makers of the time period, uh, and we hope to eventually bring in some guests to talk about uh, either the research that they've conducted Uh, on 19th century American brass bands or even the bands that they're uh, conducting and leading today as reenactment bands. Something else that we're kind of hoping to do at some point is uh, bring on different recordings of different bands that currently exist. That kind of goes along with bringing in guest artists for their bands, but we hope to listen to some current bands and talk about them, maybe review some CDs, but we really want to make this a combination of 19th century brass bands and the 21st century reenactment brass bands
1: yeah i think it's a um you know it's a very strong tradition in other parts of the world the brass band tradition um you see you know in the uk there are brass bands everywhere but in the united states it was more of a short-lived phenomenon so um it's going to be cool to kind of bring this background and and talk about it as it's progressed over time in this country. So I'm really excited for this.
0: So one of the reasons why Stephen and I wanted to start this podcast is because we've been uh, seeing a rise in interest in both the scholarly research surrounding Civil War brass pans during the 19th century, but also uh, an interesting Uh, culture that's kind of happening in reenactment brass bands. We know that following the 150th uh, anniversary of the Civil War, brass bands kind of started declining. There was a big build up to the creation of these ensembles uh, in the early 2010s. And then shortly after, a lot of the bands started folding or not being as active. Uh, But despite that, there are still a lot of very Uh, active bands, both with performing and education. So we find it super interesting that uh, these bands still exist and still are trying to perform on a regular basis, but more importantly, educate uh, both audiences and students of music. So a little bit about myself. So uh, like I said, my name is Chris Triano. I am a euphonium slash baritone horn player. I've been playing my instrument for a little bit over 20 years now. And I actually got interested in Civil War brass bands back when I was growing up on Long Island. My father's is actually a tuba player, and he would play regularly in the Old Bethpage Village Restoration Brass Band under the direction of Dr. Kirby Jolly. That brass band uh, went on to perform two selections for Ken Burns' Civil War documentary. And, you know, I just kind of went to the. Old Bethpage Village, a ton growing up, and just got to really absorb this kind of music. And then I went off to college, went off to Texas, came to Virginia. Uh, time passed, you know, that, that uh, experience kind of recessed in the back of my memory for a little bit. And then it was coming to Virginia, where I was all of a sudden surrounded by this Civil War history and music that I got really interested in it again. So I actually started a Civil War brass band affiliated with George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And we were able to acquire through the university uniforms and instruments to be able to uh, create this ensemble. So it's been a real joy, you know, getting to jump back into this area of research and lovely, exciting type of music Uh, And Stephen Canastracy is actually uh, one of our euphonium baritone horn players in that ensemble as well. Stephen, you want to talk a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. It's been a a blast playing in that group that Chris founded. Um, And it's funny, uh, you know, getting to know Chris and working with Chris a lot. It's funny how kind of loosely similar our backgrounds are. I grew up in Pennsylvania. um, And in Pennsylvania, as I'm sure many other states, there's a really strong uh, community band tradition. Um, and I was lucky enough, my elementary band director, uh, conducts a band in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. Uh, it's currently, uh, the name is the Perseverance Band. Um, but in kind of getting back into this research, um, you know, with Chris, I learned that that band actually, um, mustered up during the civil war and they were attached to the 93rd, uh, Pennsylvania regiment. So. Mm -hmm. That kind of piqued my interest a little bit, and I've always been interested in kind of Civil War era history growing up in Pennsylvania, pretty close to Gettysburg. Um, And then, you know, I went up to Rochester for school, back down to Pennsylvania for school, and then now I'm back uh, in school in Virginia as well, and um, much like Chris being surrounded by all this Civil War history Um, you know, the city of Fairfax, there's a lot of history there. And then right down the road is the Bull Run Battlefield. Um, And it's really kind of reignited that that interest. And then so when Chris started the uh, brass band at at Mason, um, that really kind of was another catalyst. So I'm really glad we're able to do this. And it's been great to kind of dive back into some old curiosities I had. Um, And then that led to this. So
0: yeah that's really cool that's really cool about your your hometown band i didn't know that uh you had discovered that information i was in what on long island i was in a number of community bands there as well but i'm not sure if they actually started during the civil war how did you come across that information like piece those bits together to find out that the band that you had been playing in was uh was a civil war band
1: in um well, I've played with them in the summer. I mean, it's just kind of summer season stuff. And mm-hmm. it was kind of mentioned, and I forgot about it, that the director, you know, each concert kind of given a history of the band um, is kind of mentioned. And then um, there's a woman in the band who is kind of the official historian. And I emailed the band director the other day um, about that history, the Civil War history. And, you know, he connected me with... Um, with this woman in the band who's been doing a lot of research and um they i think they um they mustered up yeah and they were attached to the 93rd pennsylvania regiment band and that or regiment and that um that's actually documented um there's a website that's like specifically for pennsylvania civil war uh Mm -hmm. regiments and whatnot and they actually have the um roster of people the names of the people who were in the band when it was attached to that regiment. So, Mm, um, yeah, it was just kind of mentioned, you know, in a couple concerts and I'd forgotten about it and then kind of getting back into this research. I I remembered, and I've done some digging and, and it, Mm. it, it checks out. So,
0: so that's really cool. I'm not actually really familiar with the the 93rd. Do you know like off the top of your head, any like engagements or, uh, what kind of action they might've seen during the war?
1: Yeah. So it looks like they were, they were organized, Um, in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, uh, 1861, September and October. Mm -hmm. Um, and it it looks like their first kind of duties were in defenses of Washington, um, till about 1862. Um, it says they were involved in the battle of Manassas, Mm -hmm. um, battle of Williamsburg, uh, battle of Fair Oaks, Mm Mm-hmm. Um, looks like they pushed into Richmond as well. Um, they covered Pope's retreat to Fairfax Courthouse, August, uh, late August into September. So it actually looks yeah. like they were in this area. A yeah, fair I, was
0: gonna, I was gonna say. So not only did you make the connection that the the band that you played with back home was a Civil War band, but you discovered that they were literally marching up and down the streets that you travel almost every day
1: (laughs) yeah this is wild i mean looking at these places it's like alexandria fairfax courthouse um harper's ferry antietam uh stafford down to stafford and down into fredericksburg that's all in 1862 and then 1863 yeah it looks like they were down in the fredericksburg area saw some action at gettysburg um yeah so they were all
0: over the place oh yeah does it say when they were mustered out by any chance? Uh, this
1: it goes to 1865, mustered out on June 27th, 1865.
0: Okay, so they made it to the end. So they basically were there the whole war.
1: Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's wild. I mean, I, I had looked at this page briefly, um, but I didn't, I didn't look into it that much. Awesome. So before we
0: actually get into the meat of today's topic, which is actually just going to be uh, an overall of band activity during the time of the Civil War. It's kind of acting as an introduction episode uh, for those of you that might not be incredibly familiar with uh, brass bands during this time period. Uh, we want to let you know that we do have a website and uh, the notes for each episode are going to be available on the website. The website is eabbpodcast.com That's eabbpodcast.com I think uh, yeah, Stephen, what, what's the overall plan that we're going to have over there?
1: So for the, the website, it'll kind of be a landing spot for everything related to the podcast. Um, we'll have the episodes up there that you can play um, right on the website. Um, we'll also uh, be on, you know, Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Hopefully we can get all the technology figured out there. Um, but my kind of main idea for the website was to have show notes for every episode um, that kind of give a recap of what we talked about and then some resources that we either mention or if you're interested to dive further into the topics we talked about in that in the episode uh, there will be some links for you there and resources you can dive into you know to satisfy some of your curiosity that i hope this um, these podcasts spark for you
0: so let's dive into it a little bit here the civil war Uh, Broke out in 1861, but brass bands didn't just crawl out of the primordial ooze in 1861 as well. There was definitely uh, a lead up and uh, an evolution of music up to the point uh, in 1861, dating all the way back to uh, revolutionary times, colonial times, uh, during the Revolutionary War, the military units would employ field musicians, much like they did during the Civil War. And it would consist of usually a fifer and a drummer. And they would utilize these two instruments, the fifed and rope tension field drum, they would use these instruments because they were loud and very shrill. They were able to be heard uh, over great distances and over uh, loud troop noise. So they would utilize these instruments uh, on the field for helping maneuver the troops during battle. Uh, and in the camp as well to be able to be played over the entire large area of the camp. Uh, In addition to the field musicians, they would also have what was known as bands of music. These were more like recreational uh, types of music ensembles that were roughly kind of like a woodwind quintets, but slightly larger. They would utilize flutes, clarinets, oboes, then natural horns. basically a French horn, but acting as like a bugle with uh, with no valves. The valve hadn't been invented yet. Uh, And they would use these types of ensembles to perform concerts for the troops uh, and even uh, in towns in between engagements as well. So those were bands of music. Similar thing kind of happened through the War of 1812. Obviously, after the Revolutionary War, uh, the United States was very anti-standing military. So the military numbers came down. Uh, the United States kind of went into a uh, reserve format where each town would kind of have reserve troops and attached to those reserve troops would usually be a form of music as well, both field musicians and bands of music. Uh, War of 1812, army you know, grows again and then following the war of 1812, those numbers came back down and we saw the reserves kind of come back, the, uh the, the guard units in each town. So as uh, the recreational music with the bands of music was becoming more and more popular as peacetime lasted a longer amount of time, uh, the, those reserve units kind of became more of a, a social fraternity and more of a social time. So the, the recreational music became a little bit more uh, important to those people than the field music did at the time. The transition uh, after the war of 1812, as this becomes more popular, brass instruments are becoming more popular as well. Uh, Stephen, you wanna talk a little bit about uh, the development kind of, of the brass instruments and how that got us to where we are in 1861?
1: Yeah, so like you mentioned, um you know, you had natural horns and natural trumpets, uh, which did not have any valves. Um, So in order to change the key that they played in, they would have to pop out sections of tubing, call them crooks, and um, put different crooks in to be able to play in different keys. Um, So once the, the valve technology came along, that really, made these instruments a lot more agile, a lot more easy to play. Um, and they were fully chromatic without having to really change anything out. Um, so this valve technology was really important. And, you know, to a large extent, the same technology they were using back there is what we're using today. I mean, we still see trumpets with rotary valves, trumpets with piston valves, same thing with tubas. Um, so this valve technology, you know, was very important. And it's interesting, um, the valved Instruments were, you know, not around for very long before people started writing really hard music. Um, <laughs> so the and we're running into this, some of that stuff, you know, with with the music we play uh, in the band. It's you know some of those E flat trumpet parts or cornet parts uh, are extremely difficult. Um, so the, as far as the brass bands go, the first brass bands um, they utilized keyed bugles and ophicleides, which um, an ophicleide is. Kind of, it kind of looks like a brass bassoon, but with a mouthpiece instead of a reed. Uh, it's very weird, um, weird looking instruments. Um, and so with the advent of all these instruments that are easier to play, um, more agile, town brass bands became extremely popular um, throughout the United States, kind of in um, areas that were industrialized. Uh, where there were a lot of people, a lot of workers, and to a large extent, immigrants um, from the UK really had uh, a large influence on the instrumentation of these ensembles because they were coming from a place um, that already had this brass band tradition. Um, in, In Europe, kind of each mine or each factory would have a band that was associated with it. And the owners of these mines and factories encouraged all their employees to play in these brass bands because in their minds, it would keep them out of trouble. So then when you bring those people over to the United States, they bring that um, tradition with them. Um, so that's that's why you see a lot of these early brass bands in places like New York and Boston that were already kind of industrialized and, and had this tradition. Um, and so the, the first kind of publication that I could find of a lot of this brass band music um, was from 1853. It was the Firth Pond and Company in New York. Um, and they began publishing the Brass Band Journal, which was a collection of um, saxhorn band pieces. Um, and to kind of talk about the music a little bit, all these, these pieces were kind of popular music forms. Uh, you know, you'd have marches and quick steps and other forms of dances. Um, and that lines up with. You know, kind of the purpose of these brass bands as entertainment music um, in the time they were kind of playing the popular music of the day. I had a college professor one time who said that these brass bands were kind of like the iPods of the uh, of the mid to late 1800s. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of where where this is coming from. Um, but in addition to some of those popular music forms, there was some more substantial, um, pretty difficult music. Um, being composed for these bands. Um, The Manchester, New Hampshire Cornet Band, um, their books have a lot of really difficult music in them. Um, So you kind of have both sides of the coin being represented there as far as the music goes. Um, I remember reading
0: uh, in one of my books about the famous band leader, Patrick Gilmore. He was a famous band leader. He was also a cornetist. And they wrote about how he was always practicing and wanted to practice so much that when he would go to sleep in order to continue helping to improve his embouchure while he was sleeping, he would take a mouthpiece and tie some string around the mouthpiece and then tie the string around his head so that the mouthpiece sat on his lips while he was sleeping. Now, I don't I'm know. i going to try that. <laughs> yeah, right. It'll help with the, our scales for sure, trying to yeah. get all the way up to three octaves. But, right. Yeah, I don't know how true of a story that is unless he was like a really still sleeper. But uh, yeah, that, that just shows, uh, at least anecdotally, the, the commitment that these musicians had at a very early on stage in these instruments development of trying to develop their technique and musicality and all that kind of stuff. I, I thought it was kind of
1: crazy. Yeah, really, because once, I mean, once this valves, that valve technology came in, um, it... The sky was the limit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really there was, there was nothing that, um, you know, a little bit of practice uh, wasn't going to enable you to do on the horn. Um,
0: and that was a big component of the, the rise in popularity of the brass bands, because like Stephen was saying, you had the, the key bugle, which was invented actually all the way back in 1810 uh, and then shortly after the ophicleide, which uh, like Stephen was saying is kind of like a bassoon, but it actually translates to keyed serpent is actually what Alpha Clyde translates to. The uh, what was it? Office means serpent, and cleis means covered. So it's like a covered serpent. Hmm. Uh, these instruments, although producing you know similar timbers, tone qualities that we're used to hearing with modern day brass instruments, the key mechanisms were had a had a pretty steep learning curve. You know, it, it went uh, from five keys to seven keys to nine keys. You know the the intricacy of these instruments kept on getting more and more complex as time went on. So definitely that, that learning curve curve was getting steeper and steeper uh, until like you mentioned the the invention of these valves in uh, the 1830s really allowed for the, the everyday man to be able to pick up these instruments, which again, ties into what you were saying, like with the uh, brass bands in the UK, right? The, the everyday working man being able to pick up, an instrument easily.
1: Yeah. And they prided themselves that there were no professional musicians in those bands in the UK. Um, and it, it, it's funny the, um, doing a little bit of reading on the library of Congress website, um, that the, in the United States in the early brass bands, you kind of had amateurs and professional musicians mixing. Um, and so like the, the culture of being really proud that everybody, uh, was an amateur player, uh, wasn't quite there in the United States.
0: Mhm. Uh is that still the case over in the UK? I know that they still have a really active uh brass band tradition, a very competitive brass band tradition.
1: Yeah, I, th- I I can't speak for sure, but I think that um that that amateur tradition is still what they try and uphold. Uh I think there's kind of like a threshold now where uh y- you can't make like a certain amount of your income from uh from playing. Gotcha. Uh so yeah, you you would still have to have like kind of a, kind of a non-playing job to k- keep that uh, more amateur status, mm-hmm, for sure.
0: Cool. So you were saying that you know the the introduction of the valve you know allowed it to become a little bit more accessible. So do you know uh, when this transition kind of started happening? Like when? Uh, well, first when bands moved from kind of the mixed bands of music version where it was woodwind quintets with some brass instruments then started incorporating the brass band uh, brass instruments and then eventually becoming all brass Do you know when that kind of started happening
1: i'm not sure when that started happening but in doing some reading it, it's kind of interesting because there was there was a time like you were saying with the bands of music which is primarily woodwinds and then eventually you know, we shifted and there were a lot of just plain brass bands. And then there was kind of a shift, like a merging of the two, uh, which is how we kind of get like the, the modern military band instrumentation. And that was really influenced by um, some German and Italian immigrants uh, and band leaders who came over to the United States who um, kind of started to add back in the woodwinds. And that was happening even before the Civil War. Uh, A little bit, and I think after the Civil War was when we kind of got that transition back to um, a mix of of the brass and woodwinds. But I'm not sure when the initial shift like from woodwind-centric ensembles to brass-centric ensembles happened.
0: Yeah. Well, I know the the famous Spanish band leader in the United States, in New York City, uh, Claudio Grafula, Mm -hmm. he had... Uh, his 7th Regiment New York band and was often regarded as being, you know, one of the best bands in the country. And they were exactly what you said. They were uh, a mix of woodwind and brass instruments as well. I know the United States Marine Band maintained its woodwind section throughout the 19th century, even as it was adding in brass instruments and never went fully brass like a lot of these other town bands and militia bands were. Right. And then I was also doing some research and I saw that, yeah, this, as the brass instruments were being created, introduced, uh, you know, after 1810 with the keyed bugle and the 1830s with uh, the sax horns, uh, the all brass bands kind of started forming where it was just brass instruments by themselves the earliest one i saw was 1834 was the dodworth brass band in new york city mm-hmm. and then followed by the salem brass band and the boston brass band both in massachusetts in, right. 18, in 1835 so it was those two bands or three i guess 1834 and 1835 was when brass bands became pure brass bands uh and then yeah as you were saying that that transition was kind of happening slowly over time as these instruments were becoming more common, more affordable with the industrial revolution and with tooling that made these instruments easier to manufacture. And, uh, yeah, it led to the beginning of the American brass band movement in
1: 1835. Yeah. So from the mid 1830s to the beginning of the civil war, these brass bands, um, were kind of attached to town centers, uh, and were, uh, you know, gaining popularity. I read that um, these brass band concerts were sometimes being paid for by the railroad companies, so that they had an opportunity to uh, raise the the fares for people coming into town to see the concerts. Um, so, you know, these these brass bands were super popular um, because of the type of music they played and um, just how how many of them were around. Um, so then. The Civil War broke out and this kind of changed a lot of things, um, not only in the country at large, but um, kind of in the, this brass band, band tradition. Um, and I was reading that um, some some people attribute the, you know, rapid response of the north to muster up this huge army. Uh, very quickly to um, some of these brass bands um, because the brass bands were very, very popular. And it seemed like there was a trend um, for these brass bands to kind of enlist as a group in the union army, um, which then people, you know, would see that their favorite brass band had enlisted uh, in the union army. So then they would be more likely to, um, to enlist themselves. So there were some of these bands um, that enlisted and then were attached to um, a, a unit of soldiers, a regiment. Um, so Patrick Gilmore's band, it was formed in 1858, um, and they were eventually attached to the 24th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Unit. Uh, and I mentioned this a little bit before. Um, but the modern-day perseverance band in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, my hometown, um, they enlisted and they were attached to the ninety-third Pennsylvania regiment. Um, so that was one way that these regimental bands uh, were formed. And then there another way um, was had to do with the War Department General Order Number Forty Eight, which was issued in July. Of 1861.
0: That's right, Stephen. So General Order Number Forty-Eight essentially allowed each company in the army to have two field musicians. Uh, the field musicians would usually be a drummer and then either a bugler or a fifer. That was at the company level, and then at the regimental level, they were allowed to have, or they were entitled to, a brass band, and that was a maximum number of twenty-four musicians allowed at that regiment level. So you had regimental brass bands, and then company field musicians. And what these field musicians would do is, uh, at the regimental level, amass into what we refer to as a fife and drum corps. So you might be familiar with seeing fife and drum corps, um, maybe a colonial Williamsburg, or the United States Old Guard for the Army. Uh, they have a fife and drum corps, and there's even a fife and drum corps uh, at George Mason University. These Larger ensembles of multiple fifers and drummers and sometimes buglers uh, Are portraying what we would see in during the Civil War as a regimental level or sometimes a brigade level also uh, Fife and drum corps Whereas all the reenacting Civil War brass bands that we see are Purely at the regimental level and sometimes at the higher up uh, brigade level as well. So this General Order number 48 uh, allowed for this instrument makeup to take place. And then it wasn't until uh, about a year later, July 29th, 1862, that the War Department issued General Order number 91. And this, uh, for the sake of saving money, millions of dollars actually, uh, eliminated brass bands at the regimental level and made it strictly a brigade level ensemble. We're going to have a a picture on our show notes page, basically breaking down all the different sizes of the the army, but basically understand that a company is the smallest unit that we've just talked about, is the fewest number of soldiers, and then uh, a regiment is a larger collection of soldiers than that, and then a brigade is a larger, even more so, collection of soldiers than that. (music) This idea of having a regimental brass band, uh, it being a brass band is a novel idea, but the idea of having more of a a recreational, morale-boosting musical unit uh, is not a novel idea, which we touched on earlier, the bands of music, those woodwind with a little bit of brass elements that existed in the Revolutionary War, and the War of 1812. So these types of recreational ensembles did exist prior to the civil war but the civil war was the first time that it was utilized as primarily brass bands but also on the large of a scale the fact that there was uh, a war department order issuing each regiment having the ability to enlist up to 24 bandsmen per regiment uh it's really interesting And fun fact a a 24 person band could be enlisted per regiment for infantry regiments and artillery regiments, but cavalry regiments could only have up to sixteen bandsmen. I don't know if that has to do with the the cost of the the horses maybe made the that band number lower. I'm not in Probably.
1: I wouldn't want to play a brass instrument while riding a horse, you know, it's running at full speed.
0: <laughs> yeah, so there's actually one brass band that currently exists that does still reenact uh, cavalry brass band units. So the the second cavalry brigade band in central Ohio actually still portrays this tradition of cavalry brass bands. And they have a lot of really good videos online and on their Facebook page. That's actually really a sight to see. It's really awesome seeing both, you know, a a very high performing brass band in addition to them being on these beautiful, gigantic horses. You know, it's, it's pretty awesome. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Great input, Stephen.
0: So once the the Civil War broke out and these regimental brass bands were involved in the day-to-day activities of America in wartime, they kind of had a variety of roles. One of the more important roles that a regimental brass band would have would be entertaining the troops at night. These troops, it, it was the first war where troops were being transported by train but the majority of troop movement was still by foot, was still on the move. So these musicians would march for miles in one hundred percent wool uniforms with all their gear uh, in the middle of, you know, most of the time Virginia heat. It was it was pretty miserable, and they would do this for days, and then start shooting at each other. So not the most uh, uplifting life. To life experience to be having at the time so these brass bands would be with the soldiers all the time and at night would serenade them with concerts uh both of patriotic airs to kind of keep them motivated but then also playing ballads and uh serenades and arias that would remind them of home some tunes that i kind of think of off the top of my head is like just before the battle mother or lorena or home sweet home these types of beautiful ballads would you know remind the troops you know of their loved ones back home and give them a rev- revived sense of what they're fighting for and it was incredibly powerful and the troops loved their brass bands they would advocate for them if there was ever a threat of them being cut or relocated the troops loved them there's a lot of instances of officers uh either increasing the pay of the band or uh, raising money to buy them new instruments, or just raising money to keep them with their regiment. Uh, officers would you know, dish out money out of their own pocket just to keep these bands there. So it was super important to have bands in the camp for morale purposes. Other uh, functions that these brass bands would serve would be as they were marching, the brass bands would perform tunes To keep the troops entertained while they were moving. I mentioned earlier that one of the innovations of brass instruments was the -the over-the-shoulder sax horn. So over-the-shoulder sax horns, although being labeled as sax horns, uh, are not indeed sax horns. Sax horns uh, is a term given to brass instruments developed by Adolf Sax. He's a Belgian instrument maker. he created the sax horn in the 1840s, but the over-the-shoulder sax horn was actually invented in 1838 by Alan Dodworth in New York City. So the idea of uh, these over-the-shoulder sax horns being called sax horns is just incorrect nomenclature, but it's just the popular name that kind of took off. So these over-the-shoulder sax horns would point backwards behind the musicians uh, and allow for bands to play to troops marching behind them so that the troops could hear them uh basically the first uh bell front you know like marching band like instrument except they they pointed backwards
1: and if you heard the name adolf sax and are thinking of another instrument in the reed family the saxophone yes it is the same gentleman he also invented the saxophone <laughs> fun fact very fun fact i wonder if uh <laughs> these bandsmen you know since they were in the front of the mm-hmm. band like was there did they like have maps on their drums so they knew where they were gone it I'm was sure that, that another duty that they had to know where I'm to sure, go i'm sure that's exactly what it was yeah probably <laughs> just it was the drummer's job
0: to lead the army you know <laughs> across the country i'm not sure i would trust any of my drummer friends to do that <laughs> no. oh certainly not no <laughs> You give it to the euphonium players, they'd be able to get you where you're going.
1: Yeah, we're a very particular bunch. (laughs) We know what's up.
0: So actually transitioning that into one of the other roles that they would do. So yeah, they would march with the troops uh, to keep them entertained, but being at the front of the the invading force most of the time with the northern armies, they would uh, be the welcome wagon essentially for the brass bands into these sometimes hostile towns. It was very common for these brass bands to play songs of the rival army when they were entering new towns, just to try to warm up the, the, uh, the townsfolk to their presence. So it was kind of like a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, not negotiation. Uh, Olive Branch. Yeah, an thing. Olive
1: Branch, a peace offering. Yeah, it was kind of like a peace will. offering.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was super interesting also.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that, that they would, um, you know, try and soften the townspeople.
0: Yeah, so they're not, I'm not exactly sure how this would happen. I know that they would, yeah, soften the townspeople. The band, uh, the army, you know, sometimes would ransack the place, but <laughs> the, the army would do whatever it was doing there and then pass through the town. Most of the time, the band would play, for a majority of the time that the army was in the town and they would be the last to leave also. So I don't know if once the army passed through the town, if the, the band then had to like double time it back to the front of the column or or what that was like. But uh, that would make the band job even more exhausting if they had to wear the uniform, play their instrument all the time. And then when they were done, run all the way to the front. Right. What do they call that? A ladder exercise in track and field. Oh yeah. A ladder relay or something
1: like that. And if all that wasn't difficult enough, then in the battles, they had other duties too. I mean, you'd have the field musicians playing during the battle sometimes. um, But the bandsmen would oftentimes serve in a medical capacity. Um, You know, either pulling people off the battlefield, they're assisting in the medical tent, um, tending to wounds. So these bandsmen were really kind of all over the place um, all the time in the war. I kind of get the general sense that um, they did a lot more than, than people think, than just playing. Yeah, the, the regimental
0: brass bands were purely non-combatant. They, they never picked up arms and fought during a battle. There are instances of field musicians actually doing this, like drummers dropping their drum and then picking up a rifle and fighting. There was actually a few congressional medal Medal of honors awarded to field musicians for doing this um but it didn't happen with regimental brass bands the idea was that uh the least effective combatants would be issued to medical purposes so being musicians not super capable in the field so they were assigned to assist with cutting people's legs off and it was uh, a pretty grim and grisly experience i'm sure during battles for these people
1: yeah they never took up arms but they probably picked up a few arms <laughs> good one Stephen. then <laughs> uh
0: there's there's a few instances also of bands playing during fighting um there's at least one account of uh, a personal account of a soldier kind of rounding a corner and then running into a band playing a patriotic air during the fighting and like under fire and all that stuff. So it was at least in certain circumstances, the case for brass bands to play while the fighting was going on again, as a form of morale boosting for the troops. Uh, Similarly, there's a few instances of band battles going on back and forth of either brass bands, uh, from rivaling armies playing at each other before the battle starts or the night before the battle when they're camped across the river from one another, uh, you know, playing at each other. So that was something that happened during the time period as well. One more account that I read, there was a Union army that had a brass band and the Confederate army did not. And they were camped out across a river from each other the night before they're about to start shooting each other. And... (laughs) the Northern Brass Band was serenading its troops and then the Confederates were shouting across the river, uh, requesting tunes for the Northern Band to play for them, which they did. So the Northern Band provided entertainment for both armies that night. Which is kinda of wild to think about that. They would go through that type of experience and then go on shooting each other. It's kinda of like the uh is it the the Christmas piece uh what is that one?
1: Oh yeah, the uh, Christmas Eve in what was that World War 2?
0: Might have been World War 1, was I think it was trench warfare. They came out of yeah. the trenches and like sang Christmas carols and went back to shooting each other the next day.
1: <laughs> There's an opera that somebody wrote about that and actually Kaylee and I saw it at the Kennedy Center a year ago. All right. Uh about that instance? Yeah, and it was really cool because it was written in uh, cuz you had the United States Army, the German Army and I think the French and um so, those characters in the opera, like the English army would sing in English, the German army characters would sing in German, and the French army characters would sing in French. So, you had all these languages going on. I just like punched the microphone stand. Hmm. Um, it's called Silent Night. Um, Kevin Putz is the composer. It was an opera in two acts. Is it new? Um, yes. It was premiered yeah. in 2011. So, mm-hmm. not brand new, but no, um, mm-hmm. fairly new.
0: All not. Yeah, 18th century opera. So, Right. Well,
1: obviously not 18th century if it's talking about World War One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 1914, so that would be World War I. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Very interesting.
0: So these were a lot of the roles that bands would take on during the Civil War, and brass bands were utilized throughout the entirety of the Civil War from 1861 to 1865 in that capacity. There's not a lot of research, uh, on brass bands in the South. We know they existed, uh, and there were a number of really good ones. Um, but the documentation for brass bands in the North is much greater. And we know that, you know, a lot of it could have come down to cost. There could have been significantly less in the South just because of, uh, the war and the economic status of the South at the time, maybe not able to afford brass instruments as readily as the North, but we do know that music was an important aspect of their soldier life also. They utilized a lot of folk instruments, a lot of string instruments, uh, and they, that would serve similar functions, string bands, uh, as we were just mentioning to the, the brass bands. <clears throat> this whole time we've been talking about regimental brass bands. But actually, uh, on July 29th 1862, the War Department issued General Orders Number 91, and this order actually abolished all regimental brass bands because they were finding that they could save millions of dollars by not having the government support thousands of brass band musicians. So, this order abolished regimental brass bands and allocated uh, that duty to brigade bands. So... The, the music and their function all stayed the same. It's just uh, the number of brass bands slightly decreased. I mentioned slightly because there's a number of instances where, again, like I mentioned before, officers or men in the regiment would pay to keep the regimental brass band with their regiment. And then they would kind of hire them as like contracted work that way. Um, but then there's also instances of, the soldiers that were in the regimental brass band being remustered into an infantry status with that regiment and then as an infantryman they would then just be allowed to continue playing their instrument so they wouldn't appear on muster rolls as a bandsman they would appear as an infantryman but it would still their their role would still be as a brass musician granted when the the format moved over to the brigade band style the bands generally got a little bit better because uh getting promoted to that type of a level they prioritized uh the really proficient musicians um but yeah so the the duties and everything remain the same for the brigade bands as they did for the regiment band so that's why you'll sometimes see today with different uh reenacting reenacting brass bands some of them refer to themselves as regimental brass bands some of them refer to themselves as brigade bands and that's where that distinction kind of comes from
1: yeah i guess cuz the regiment was the the smallest and probably well they they were the smallest collection of soldiers so they were the most plentiful division of the army so i can see how that would be a very obvious um money saving measure to kind of do away with a lot of those well not do away with but to reassign a lot of those musicians to restructure it for sure there's
0: there's a really interesting book that was published in 1966 uh, called bands and drummer boys of the civil war this was written by arthur wise and francis lord uh in that book they talk a great deal about the different roles the different duties of all the, the brass bands both in the north and in the south um they actually mention that Uh, in January of 1862 that the Union Army had at least 618 bands, which equated to at least 14,000 bandsmen. So that was 14,000 brass players that are separate from the field musicians. And that's just in the North. So yeah, definitely able to cut down on cost by by trying to wean those numbers down just a little bit.
1: So as these musicians uh, were either getting out of the army or as the civil war kind of came to a close, um, they would return to where they came from. We mentioned Patrick Gilmore uh, a little earlier and how his band, the Gilmore band was attached to the uh, 24th Massachusetts uh, volunteer. Um, and so they, they were mustered out in 1862. um, So kind of towards the beginning of the war, but then they, they returned to Boston and they grew and they uh, promoted Gilmore's grand Boston band. Um, So,
0: yeah, so yeah, exactly. The Patrick Gilmore, you know, had the brass band and then as it transitioned into his grand Boston band, he was promoting that and made band music incredibly more popular in the united states but he began incorporating uh woodwind instruments similar to what the marine band was already doing and what claudio grafula was already doing but he was such a showman and i kind of think of him as like the uh the pen and teller of of uh band music he was just incredibly showy incredibly popular and he had two hosted two national peace jubilees to commemorate the end of the civil war. One he had in the summer of uh, 1869 in my notes, I have the summer of 69. I think I was making a joke myself there. Like uh, uh, what is it? not John Fogarty? It, uh,
1: yeah. Uh, classic was rock song. Yeah. Yeah. I know the song.
0: Yeah. Uh, but that uh, event was five days long and involved 30,000 singers a 1,000-piece orchestra and six bands. So this event was absolutely massive and uh, was incredibly well-attended. He tried to outdo himself the second time in the summer of 1872. He extended the celebration to 18 days, uh, but the event was not nearly as well-attended, so he, he stopped after the second one. But both of those events were... Uh, very grand in scale, very showy and uh, really helps solidify Patrick Gilmore as a celebrity uh, in his time.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to me. I mean, we, we see, you know, through doing this research um, how popular these brass bands were before and after the civil war. And it's kind of interesting to think about that, how it relates to um, kind of the, the shift that then happened uh, kind of in the 20th century where orchestras kind of became more popular and more prevalent in the United States, um, which they already were in, in Europe. But, um, these, these bands before orchestras really came about, more well-funded, these bands are what people were, were going to see and they were playing the music that people wanted to hear. Um, and we, we still get a little bit of that, uh, but I think, you know, current day in the United States, I think the the orchestra is kind of predominantly the, the large group of, of choice. I think um,
0: some of that goes back to what we were saying earlier about how brass bands, bands in general, are populated by the everyday person, uh, sometimes at the amateur level, but it's just incredibly accessible to listen to and to be involved in. I think maybe to a certain extent that makes it feel lowlier, You know, maybe a little less sophisticated.
1: Possibly, yeah.
0: But th- But then we know that the band tradition transitioned more into Dixieland and jazz. So if you're, if you're tracing popular music, you know, it's more like the orchestral tradition goes into the band tradition, goes into jazz, goes into rock, blues, all that kind of stuff. Um, But, but it is interesting how today, even though bands helped create that popular music, that we listen to today, orchestras still exist, but are like almost held to this <laughs> much higher standard and higher, uh, podium of exaltation from the, from the public. You know, it's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah. I might be biased, but there's still nothing like, you know, like a summer outdoor band concert.
0: Oh yeah. It's... And we're, we're super, fortunate to be living in the D.C. area and having all these awesome bands right here. Yeah. So Patrick Gilmore was this huge celebrity and was loved by everybody right up until his um, kind of unexpected death in 1892. He unfortunately died shortly after uh, a performance and his band and the whole country was absolutely shocked. Uh, But around this time period, there was another band leader that was kind of up and coming. And uh, he was starting to make a name for himself as a band leader, as a composer. And he saw himself as uh, needing to challenge Gilmore to try to obtain this uh, pinnacle band leader spot. And this person was John Philip Sousa. So John Philip Sousa was kind of biting at the heels of Patrick Gilmore. Uh, you know, definitely reputable in his own right at the time, but uh, he really wanted that spotlight. And then with Gilmore's death, that would left the the lane wide open for Sousa to kind of take over. And as they say, the rest is history. We all know John Philip Sousa's imprint on Americana and the band world.
1: So around the time that John Philip Souza was really becoming a well-known household name is when we start to see, um, the recording technology develop. Um, and really kind of the first way that things were recorded, uh, were on wax cylinders. Um, and these kind of go back to the 1890s, um, that popular tunes from the civil war, uh, were recorded on these wax cylinders. Um, There's a recording of the Battle of Manassas that was played by the Edison Symphony Orchestra um, on a wax cylinder and that dates to 1899. Um, But what's interesting about these early recordings is that they were predominantly vocal quartets um, and voice and guitar and smaller ensembles and I think that has a lot to do with the mechanics of recording on these wax cylinders. And there's actually a really interesting um, YouTube video that we'll put in the show notes that shows the process of recording something on a wax cylinder. And when you think of wax cylinders, you think of the phonograph that, um, you know, you load the cylinder in the phonograph and an needle comes down onto the cylinder and it's got that big, um, you know, cartoon horn that comes around. And that's, that's how the sound gets out. And when you were recording on these wax cylinders it was kind of that process in reverse you have that big horn but that's what you would be singing into so these this recording technology this early recording technology kind of limited the size of the group that you could record with any um, you know sense of of fidelity in the recording Um, and then that transition these cylinders were kind of brittle and they were really easy to break um, and you couldn't you know, reliably copy them many times. So then the, um, you know, as, as the recording technology developed, they took the cylinder and flattened it. And now we get, we have these, um, these discs, uh, these waxed discs um, that people recorded on and you could record more music on them. Um, and you could also um, pick up more players. Um, so there are early recordings of bands um on wax cylinders and wax discs, um, and and they sound like early recordings of bands, you know, because you really just have, you have that one horn, the re- recording horn in the front of the room, and all the sound is getting funneled through that horn, so that's why on these recordings, you hear a lot of the upper voices, you hear a lot of the woodwinds, and whatever was kind of in the front of the band, um, and there's a library of um, some of these early wax cylinder and wax discs recordings um, that's run by UC Santa Barbara and we'll have the link to that in the show notes as well if you want to poke around and listen to some of these um, some of these early wax cylinder recordings so then as you move forward with this recording technology um, you get the LP that we all know and some of us uh, still collect Um, and the first recording um, of Civil War era brass band music on you know, an LP with a more modern um, sound was done by Frederick Fennell. And so before this, uh, that w- that recording was released in 1960. And before 1960, you see the tradition of these really large concert bands. So you have like, because they were, uh, the idea was to mimic the size of an orchestra. So you had a great big clarinet section. Um, you had a lot of brass. Uh, you know, the trumpet section would go all the way up to E flat cornet and all the way down to flugelhorn um, and you had this big instrumentation and when Frederick Fennell did this recording, um, you know, at, leading up to being released in the in the 1960s, once that recording hit the market, that's kind of where we see a shift back towards interest in the um, Civil War brass band instrumentation um, that that we've been talking about up until this point and it kind of led to a resurgence of those bands um kind of coming back uh and the first brigade band formed in um the kind of the these reenactment bands was formed after that recording was released Uh, they were formed in 1964 Um, and it's often kind of cited as being the first civil war reenactment brass band So we just went all the way from the
0: Revolutionary War up to 1964. So that was a lot of uh, time that we just covered. And, you know, we are treating it as an, uh, of an overview, you know, of this type of music and of these bands. Uh, we're familiar that many of you listening might already be experts or well-versed in this type of music. Uh, we just wanted this to be, you know, an introductory episode so that everybody's on the same page, going forward um we are very excited to mention that our following episode the next episode is actually going to be kind of a deep dive into the record that we were just talking about uh frederick Fennell's eastman recording of civil war brass band music we've done uh some some really fun research uh there that we're excited to share with you in the next episode and going forward yeah we'll be doing more deep dives into specific topics bringing in different guest artists talking about different recordings on more specific levels and uh, we're just really excited and thankful for you guys for joining us today.
1: Definitely this is the first uh, podcast that either of us are doing Um, so we're really excited to kind of jump in to this medium and if you want to get in touch with us uh, we do have an email address that you can um, send an email to it's eabb.com podcast at gmail.com uh that's e-a-b-b dot podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear uh what you thought of the episode and uh if there's you know any piece of information that you know of that you'd like to share with us we'd be all ears So at the
0: end of each episode, we're going to highlight a featured album of music uh, that we want to expose you guys all to. This first episode, we thought it would be appropriate to feature uh, Ken Burns' original Civil War soundtrack. Uh, Ken Burns was actually inspired by Frederick Finnell's Eastman recording that we were just talking about and inspired him to kind of go through old photographs that he had and begin... Uh, his journey on creating the, that Civil War documentary that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. It's often cited that it's Frederick Fennell's 1960 album started the interest in brass music. And if you didn't get inspired by that, then you most likely got inspired by Ken Burns's Civil War documentary itself. So we're gonna uh, put some information and link uh, that album on our website. That is eabbpodcast.com. We hope you go over there and check out our featured highlight of Ken Burns' Civil War original
1: soundtrack. Yeah, so thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for this kind of introductory episode, and uh, we'll talk to you in the next one. Thank you.